You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Hey, good morning, everyone. As the kids are leaving, students second grade and below, uh, we'll go through the announcements. Sound like I'm reverberating. Um, First announcement, April 9th is the baby shower for uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Brantner. And by the way, they're, they're, they have a registry in Target if you are interested in uh, giving a gift. And that's going to be at 2 o'clock, and all families are invited to that. The new online giving uh, actually has gone into effect. So if you're having issues with that, um, I think the person to see is probably Trey. We see Trey for everything. If it's not, he'll point. Blaine is the person. That's right. Thank you, sir. Blaine is the person to see for that. Um, We had elder-led prayer scheduled for today because this is the first Sunday, and we're going to postpone that until next week because of the weather. It looks like we're going to have thunderstorms throughout the day. The students' ministry, that's uh, Wednesday, 6 to 8. That's going to be canceled this week. And by the way, the youth retreat for April 28th and 29th, there's a $25 charge for that. The deadline is uh, this Wednesday, April 5th. I have an announcement that I want to make. Um, the elders and I, in our meeting this week, we, you know, when it comes to giving, and this is probably the first time we've talked to, aside from a sermon on giving, we've talked about, about giving. And so we know it's, it's our role to make you aware of what's happening with giving. And uh, we're going to have a, a, a process, you know, moving forward where you get to see um, in, in a uh, business-type meeting. You get to see what the budget looks like and all of that. But what we wanted to bring to your attention today is uh, this graph shows what has been coming in in terms of giving from August to the far left uh, to March to the far right. And what's important about the graph is, if we go to the next slide, the uh, Accrued needs through March 17, uh, I'm sorry, March 2017 right now was $68,172, and the general giving is $49,790. Now, we created what we felt was a, uh, a very slim budget, and that budget was based on the first five months of Genesis Community Church coming together. We, we basically took five months and and uh, use that to determine what would be an annual budget. And so right now we are uh, $18,382 short. And that kind of equates to um, roughly 5000 a month that we are short. Now let me tell you why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because we want you to know what we know as we try to figure out what the Lord's will is relative to budget and where we're going to be. Um, want you to realize that there is a shortfall, and I know you know we do not want to pressure you, and I hope this is not any kind of pressure. It shouldn't be. It's just, uh, I'm not Moses, but I can do what Moses did. I can let you know, right, what the state of affairs um, are, and then you decide uh, how the Lord is moving your heart. Are we good with that? Simply put, right? Right there, because you understand what we believe about giving. 
Okay, so the final announcement is from Faith. Faith has an announcement. I wasn't bold enough to say all that she has to say, so we asked her to come up and say it. Too many words. I got to keep my sermon up here. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah, that was too much for me to deliver. (laughs) Okay, so in preparation for the sermon, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, that, that you've called us into this wonderful relationship where we are called your sons and daughters. You rescued us and made us to stand and sing, we are children of God. Lord, we adore you for that. You are a loving Father, and we know through it all, you have our best interests at heart, always. We thank you that the cross is a great, great expression of that, of your love for us and your, your willingness to do whatever it takes for us to be called children of God. Father, as we commit this time to look to your word and, and uh, learn from you, we pray that it'll indeed be you teaching us um, from your word so that our lives might be, might be edified, and ultimately you might be glorified. Lord, I, on my heart, I just sense a need to, to pray for Lois and, and the situation that she's facing with her family and the trip that she's preparing to take this week. Lord, we love her as we know you do, and we just pray that you will uh, comfort her through this time of trial, um, that you will make her sensitive to what you're doing, uh, give her confidence in knowing that, that you're orchestrating things according to your purpose and will. And ultimately, Lord, we want salvation to be at the other end of her visit. So we pray that you will even now uh, sensitize the hearts, prepare them to hear and respond. Open the hearts like, like you opened Lydia's heart as Paul gave the message. Open hearts, Lord, to respond to the truth and that you might be glorified to lives living in, in harmony with your good and perfect will. So we commit that to you. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started looking at um, what I titled Sanctification Becoming Like Christ, uh, which is our preoccupation because it's God's preoccupation with us as we move forward through life from salvation. What God is after is bringing us to look like Christ in our actions and our attitudes so that indeed we might be a reflection of his glory. So last week we talked about um, sanctification and what it really is. And just to recap real quickly, sanctification is that process whereby God makes, God sets us apart. The word simply means to set apart. And there's the ultimate sense in that at salvation, you are 100% set apart for God's use. So in that regard, you are perfectly sanctified because you belong to him. 
It's just like the objects in the temple. It's like the ground upon which Moses stood. It was all sacred because it belonged to the Lord. And the, the scripture says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. And so the Lord is moving us from that point of salvation where really all that's changed is we're saved. He makes that pronouncement. We're born again. He kills us, and now we're new people. And then we're on that, that, that continuum of growing and growing and growing toward uh, the image of Christ. We are never going to get there in this life, but that doesn't prohibit us from pushing forward. Paul says it in these words. He says to Corinthians, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Well, that talks about the second aspect of sanctification, which, which is the progressive part of it. So on the one hand, we permanently belong to God, and that's absolutely important to know. Permanently belong to God. You ever go through those times when you're wondering, where's God? I'm praying and I feel like there's just emptiness, uh, time's hard, which we'll talk about later, and I just can't connect with him. Well, that's when you pull out the truths that whether you feel it or not, it's a reality. And it's a reality that we permanently belong to the Lord, and that's all based on the death of Christ. Then there's that ethical aspect of sanctification where we're being made holy. We're being set apart from anything that defiles flesh and spirit, if you will. We're being sanctified really to live right, just to be ethical people living in an unethical world. It takes the work of God um, to do that. The verse I used to, uh, to just show, let me back up for a second, just to show that that complete nature of sanctification is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And I keep bringing it up because it's an absolutely key verse to really understand who we were, who we are, and how God sees it. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Fact, right? And then he says this, such were some of you. I guarantee you there were still Christians in Corinth practicing some of these sins, right? But... Such were some of you, categorically, that's not them anymore. And that's the point we tried to get across last week. That's not us anymore. And so the Lord, categorically, he's never going to accept that you fall into this category of sin, and that's just where you are. Categorically, no. In other words, if, if you were, I like to use this example. If you were an alcoholic prior to salvation and the Lord saves you, well, you're no longer an alcoholic. You're just a, a Christian who sins if you continue to get drunk. And you have to see it that way, right? And then give the Lord that, that, that time it takes to grow you through that progression where it's not there anymore. The world puts these isms on us. God doesn't do that. He doesn't crucify us. 
kill us with Christ, cause us to walk in the newness of life, and then say, by the way, you're still an addict. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So that's that first aspect of sanctification that I talked about earlier. And then the second aspect that we're dealing with is, once again, that aspect where the Lord, he's making us to walk and to live holy lives. You might consider the word morality, which I often prefer ethics rather than morality, but that's a different story. But, but you get it. It means you're living in a way that clearly, clearly epitomizes what good living is. That's what he's after. First, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, shows this progressiveness of sanctification. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's from glory to glory. That's a constant work that the Lord is doing, and it's ongoing. Now, a point that I made last week, and I didn't, I didn't uh, stress it, but the point is, with this progressive sanctification, we're involved with, with ultimate sanctific- sanctification at salvation. We're, we're, our involvement is responding because God comes in and saves us by himself. That's the exclusive work of God. But sanctification is not just the exclusive work of God. We participate. We respond, if you will, to the work that God is doing within. That's why we confess sins, right? Because we recognize that we didn't walk according to what God would have us do, and so we end up, Lord, forgive me, I've sinned. Well, the sin is whatever is in opposition to what's good, what's perfect, what's pleasing uh, to the Lord. This combination you see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only... I'm sorry, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How many of you wake up in the mornings and you go, okay, here's what I got to do today. Today, I have my uh, marching orders from the Lord. They are to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Four, you're never left alone. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. No Christian should ever think that any work they're doing toward this perfecting holiness out of reverence for God is done alone. It's a given. It's a given that God is at work in you always. Whether you're aware of it or not, he is always at work in you, bringing you to exhibit high ethical um, behavior. Now, last week, so the the passage that we went through last week was Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, right? And, and, And what's important about the passage is it gives us the blueprint, the basic blueprint for how it all works. And it talks about, ultimately, us being set free from sin. Remember that? Uh, Paul, in in verse 6, he says, knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's the beauty. That's an amazing statement, right? That we should no longer be slaves to sin. And the only people in the world who can say that are believers. Unbelievers are enslaved to sin. It doesn't matter what, what they look like, how moral they appear, they are enslaved to sin, right? But believers, we've been set free. We have a separation, if you will, from sin. And the way it occurred marvelously is the Lord spiritually connecting us with Christ, unifying us in his death, unifying us in his burial, and unifying us in his resurrection, which is the sense of baptism, right? So that we might walk in the newness of life. We have new life, right? It's it, kind of like if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have become new. Behold, all things have become new, he says. So Paul here gives the process of how we, in verse 6, how we no longer are slaves to sin. First is our old self was crucified. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Galatians 2.20. Crucified with Christ, right? And the crucifixion is so that the, the old self is gone. The old self is gone, crucified. Now the body of sin might be done away with or katargeo, rendered helpless, without effect, the body of sin. If the Lord had just saved us, right, justified us, if you will, justification is a legal pronouncement of not guilty, if you will. If that's all the Lord did, if all he did was to say, saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus, go your way, we would be miserable because we would have no capacity to keep ourselves from sinning. He did more than that. He killed us so that that old person that we once was is dead. You know how dead it is? Put yourself in the mindset that you were in before you were saved. Impossible. Because you'd have to strip yourself of all the knowledge that you have of goodness, God, and all of that. Impossible. So the old self was crucified so that the body of sin, and regardless of what you think the body of sin is, it doesn't affect the, the, uh, the sense of the verse in that you're no longer slaves to sin. And that's absolutely important to grasp. You're no longer enslaved to sin. Then he comes to verse 11, and he says, likewise, with all that he talks about, about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a new thing for a believer. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So now we move to Paul's application. This is where we left off. And the application is pretty straight, right? Romans chapters, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. This is the application. Now, mind you, this is chapter 6, verse 12 
Up to this point, Paul has not said to do anything. All he's done is given us knowledge. And knowledge always precedes application because you can't apply what you don't know. Knowledge always precedes action. You know these things. Jesus says, if you know these things, you will be blessed to do them. Doing comes after. And here is application. It comes after all that he said, right? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. He's asking you and I. He's asking all believers. Actually, he's commanding all believers. It's an imperative. Do not allow sin to reign. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as, look, look at this, those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the application, right? And actually, you could say chapter, uh, verse 11 is an application because you have to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. You are indeed dead to sin if you're a believer. But he says counted. He says reckon. He says make it a reality. Think through it, right? Think through it and then act on it. Do not allow this to happen. So he says your mortal body the body that's going to die and decay, the mortal body, he does not want sin to reign in the mortal body. And sin is singular. So he's talking about whatever the body of sin is. He's, he's personifying sin. Just like the Lord told Cain, sin is crouching at the door, ready to overtake you, but you must master it. Of course he can't master it, and he didn't master it. But you see the Lord even personifying sin as an enemy of Cain. So now he's saying to us, don't allow the enemy to reign. And then don't let the members of your body, don't use them as instruments of unrighteousness, right? My eyes are neutral. They're just eyes. I can use them to read the Word of God or I can use them to look at things that are unholy, right? My thoughts are fairly neutral, my mind. I could use my mind to think on the things of God, or I can use my mind to contemplate the things that are unhealthy. It's just a mind, but that's the application. It's an instrument. It's a member of my body, and I don't want to use it as an instrument of, of sin, so, so the Apostle Paul here says, listen, in, in, in light of all that's happened, here is your responsibility. Don't let it rain. Don't present the members of your body as uh, instruments for unrighteousness. So the difference really between letting sin reign and not letting sin reign is our maturity level. Would you agree? That's the difference. The difference between a believer letting sin reign and not letting sin reign is our maturity level. Now, to be sure, all of us, every one of us from time to time allows sin to reign. So I'm not saying that maturity, because remember, we're still on this continuum heading toward Christ-likeness. 
But as you move on the continuum toward Christ-likeness and the Lord is at work and you're growing and you're learning and you're maturing, you're going to have a lot less occasions where sin uh, seems to rule. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at what gives us, how, how does God mature us? Because that's what we want. We want to be in a place where we don't allow that to happen. So what are the tools? Think about it. What are the tools the Lord uses to mature us so that we're always in a place where we are hovering above the tug of sin? Well, there are many, but I'm, I'm, I'm concentrating on three today. And what's interesting is one of these is in our Sunday school class. So I can talk about Sunday school as well. So my Sunday school class mates, you guys get to see a little bit of the application, right, of what we've been talking about. So here are the three tools that we're going to look at. God's trials, God's discipline, and God's forgiveness. Those are three tools whereby the Lord matures us so that we are strong in our resistance of the tug of the flesh. So, God's trials. That's the first tool. The Lord uses trials. Trials, temptation, testing comes from the same word, parasmos, right? And so, the word actually means to put one to the test through an experience. So, there's nothing crazy about that, right? To put one through the test through an experience. Now, whether the trial is a test or temptation depends on who you're responding to. Here's what I mean. Parasmos is just testing. It's just an experience. When the Lord tests people with a trial, he is testing for the, sa for the sake of perfecting, for bringing about goodness. When Satan tempts people or tests people with temptation, he's trying to destroy. The Lord is trying to develop. Satan is trying to destroy. For example, when the Lord put the tree in the garden, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's nothing there, but it's a test for Adam and Eve, right? But Satan came in and turned that test into a temptation because when you fail the test, it's usually because you give in to whatever the temptation is. It's a simple, you put some money on the table and you tell the kid, don't touch the money, it's a temptation. Money is there, just testing your honesty. Kid picks the money up, puts it in the pocket. When you're not looking, the kid failed the test. One, there's nothing wrong with the test, but there's everything wrong with it becoming a temptation. All right, so parasmos. So when, but when the Lord tr puts us through trials, through testing, he's doing it for the purpose of developing us. It's essential to us, as we're going to see in a second. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, all kinds of people were tested by God to develop their faith, to develop their ability to live for him. Every single believer goes through trials. Actually, every person goes through trials. It's just that the believer, the Lord personally is in charge of all of that, and he's bringing about good from that. But we all endure trials. Here's how uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about um, trials and testing. 
Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay? So, such as is common to man. It's just a common thing to go through trials. And now, your Bibles are going to translate parasmos, temptation or trial or test. And there's another word for test as well, but primarily, that's how your Bibles translate parasmos, but it just depends on what's happening with it in terms of Satan and God, good coming out or evil coming out. So to handle this concept of trials, we're going to look at James chapter 1. I have the verses up here. You want to follow on. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's, what, that's fine. But James is where, we're, where we want to go. James says, verses uh, 1 through 4, Consider it all joy, of verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Right? That's awesome. It's awesome to think that you can go through trials and you can go through trials with joy because you know what's happening with it. James says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Consider it all joy. Trials can come in many forms. Affliction, persecution, sickness, many. That's why he uses the word various. But it doesn't affect the joy at all. Because the joy comes from God. And the joy is something that should stream through our lives regardless of what's happening with us. It comes from, jo- comes from, from the Lord. Peter talks about this joy And Peter's talking to people that he hasn't necessarily seen. He's writing as well to the the Jews scattered in many different places. And in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, here's what Peter says. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, he's, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about the testing of their faith. He's talking about the grueling persecution and suffering that they're enduring. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by what? Various trials. Peter says the believer's attitude is rejoicing, rejoicing through trials. James says, consider it all joy. Now, being joyful in trials, however, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to pray for trials. Right? I think that's a little uncommon to, to pray for, Lord, I want the worst you can give me. I'm ready. Right? I don't know that, that there's anywhere in the scripture where people are actually praying for, for trials. But what is normal, what is absolutely normal for a believer is to go through trials with a joyful continence. That's a fact. So guess what? When I'm enduring trials and I'm not joyful, I go to the Lord. In fact, James later on says, ask for wisdom. If you lack wisdom while you're going through the trials, ask for wisdom. So now I have to say, Lord, forgive me. 
Forgive me for this attitude that I have. I don't understand what's happening, but I know you're in charge. And I know you want me to be joyful, right? But this joy is not something you just kind of work hard at and get it there. There are certain things if you're aware of, it helps with being joyful through trials. And the first thing, and it's the key if you ask me, the first thing you want to be aware of is that God sanctions trials. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the antagonistic is. Whether you think it's Satan or another person, God is the one who sanctions all trials. And if you understand that, then you set your sights on God and God only, and you you allow him to take you through the trial and produce what it is he wants to happen in your life. He is it. We, We embrace the sovereignty of God, and often we stop short of embracing the sovereignty of God when it comes to our very lives. If we believe that God is sovereign, and he is, and if we believe that he loves us, and he does, then we must believe that whatever is happening in our lives, he is fully aware of it, and even sanctioning it for our good, for our, for our growth and, and joy and, and being able to get closer to Christ's likeness. I want to give you a few verses, and then we'll, we'll just wrap this one up. But God sanctions trials. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I know, O Lord, your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, Lord, you have afflicted me. What about Abraham? Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Basically, go and kill your son. I want him to be an offering. And the scripture says, he tested Abraham. Deuteronomy 13.3. This is interesting. I jumped in at, at verse 3, but above it, it's talking about false prophets, right? And the Lord is essentially saying to them, even if, what, if, the, if, the, if they perform a miracle or whatever, whatever they do, whatever they, it comes true, don't believe them. Verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's testing the Israelites. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, this is an amazing statement. For it is better if God should will it so. If by the will of God, it is better that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If it is the will of God. So we have to embrace that, that God is the, the one who sanctions the trials that we endure. Far, far easy to set our sights on the antagonist, right? Your boss, your child, your wife. Far easy to say you're causing me grief, right? 
than to say, Lord, I understand this is a trial. Because listen, and it's not like Peter says, suffering for doing what is right. It's not necessarily that you're doing anything wrong. And we'll see that in the life of Job in a second. But it's not necessarily that you're doing something wrong that the Lord puts you through this trial. No, you suffer for doing what is right, right? Joseph is an incredible example. I mean, Joseph was sold into slavery. He done, did nothing wrong. But because of jealousy, the jealousy of his brothers, he was sold into slavery. And it had been so long since he, he, since he had seen his brothers that when they finally met, the brothers didn't even recognize him. Horrible to be a, a slave in Egypt, right? But notice what Joseph says to them in verse 5 of chapter 45. He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Just let yourselves go. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And that's an incredible scene. If you ever get a chance to read that, an incredible scene of forgiveness, right? And Joseph recognizing that through it all, the Lord was the one. And he, he says it directly in Genesis 50, Verse 20, as he's about to die and the, the, the brothers don't know what will become of them, Joseph assures them, verse 20, because the brothers were wrong, absolutely wrong, sinful, and sell, selling him into slavery. So it doesn't mean that God condones wrongness. It's just that God orchestrates everything to bring about his good and perfect will. And so Joseph says in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Listen, that's a very mature Joseph. I don't know what he was like when he got there, because I'm sure he wasn't as mature, but I can see what he's like after, right? Right here, he, it's, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who did it purposely. So you have to embrace that. The second thing you want to embrace about trials is that God accomplishes much through trials. It's a tool. He's the potter, and he's shaping us. So let me ask you, right? The Scripture says we're potter, pottery, and he's the potter. So what's the tools? What's he using, right? He's got to be using something to cause us to move along the continuum of sanctification. Well, it accomplishes much. First Peter 4.19 says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in what? Doing good. One of the things that is accomplished through trials is trials produce right living, right? It produces right living because we don't always want the trials, and if the Lord is teaching us something through the trials, you just want to get the lesson. You get the lesson down and you move on to another trial, right? Romans chapter 5, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Look at what trial produces. Perseverance, character, and then hope. Beautiful, beautiful fruits of trials. And then 
First Peter chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials produce praise, glory, and honor from God. It's like when, when we get there and the Lord says to Rock, I just use you because you sit up here all the time up front, right? And you're the perfect example, right? So the Lord says to Rock, well done, my good and faithful servant. Who doesn't want to hear that, right? When we go to heaven, there's going to be some expressions of joy, and everybody will not get the same level of that expression. But we will all have the wonderful, wonderful experience of being with God forever and ever and ever. And personally, when I get there, I don't want to just slide in, right? I want to get there, and I want to have left a life behind me that glorifies God. That's what I want. I want to, to express my love for him, my thankfulness for him by fighting this life, living through it, doing what's necessary so that I'm always being perfected by God. It is hard, isn't it? The scripture says, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, how much the unrighteous? The Christian life is a hard life, but it's a joyful life. And often we, we, we falter under the weight of it all. But rest assured, God's got us. He knows what he's doing. We just connect with him and, uh, and we are able to endure. James, verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance make its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the Sunday school class knows about this verse. This is an incredible, incredible verse about what is gained through trials. Perseverance. Hupomone. Perseverance. Steadfastness, right? It, it's a word from which we get patience but it's active, it's steadfast, it's enduring whatever is taking place. And Paul says that that perseverance, that steadfastness produces perfection. And that's not sinful, that's not sinlessness, perfection. The word is teleos, and the word describes someone who's come of age, someone who's full grown. What he's saying is, it produces maturity, a level of maturity. And then he says that you're complete. And this word, interesting word, it comes from the word from which we get hologram or holograph. And you know, a hologram is, is, a, is a depiction. It's like a 360, three-dimension picture of something, right? What he's saying is, you're well-rounded. You're mature and well-rounded. I remember joking in Sunday school. I said, listen, somebody's going to say, Roosevelt, how are you? And I'm going to say, you know what? I'm mature and well-rounded. I wouldn't do that. That would be awful. But, <laughs> and don't do that either. Don't do that. But, but you understand what, what, the, what James is saying that trials produce. 
It produces a Christian who is mature and who is well-rounded, who's able to handle the life that God has set before them. Now, moving from trials, there's a second tool, and that's God's discipline. God's discipline. And if you guys remember, uh, during the summer, for those of you who are here, I went through a sermon talking about the discipline of God in Hebrews chapter 12. And so I want to look at that real quickly so we see how God's discipline moves us along the continuum of becoming Christ-like. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. For they disciplined, they being earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness, which means we're acting holy, share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's a light way to put it. But sorrowful, right? Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what the discipline does. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So discipline simply means child training. So when we talk about God disciplining us, it's not always that, that we've done something wrong. It's child training. Now, it could be that we've done something wrong. And if you remember, I gave you three, three things that will, will bring on the discipline of God, at least three. One, God disciplines to correct us when we sin, right? We, we discipline our kids when they do something wrong because we don't want them to perpetuate that, to keep doing wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, guess what? The Lord disciplines us as well. When we do things wrong, he disciplines us. Psalm 32, 3 through 4. This is a new example for you, but I like the example. It's a very good one. And you know who we're talking about here. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent about my sin. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Who's the psalmist? This is David. See, we know about Psalm 51 where he finally confesses. But this is prior to his confession. And look at what's happening to him. See, we think David just, oh, he sinned. And all of a sudden he's like, man, I got to confess. You go confess in tears. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm, Right? But what, what we don't get from Psalm 51 is what was life like prior to his confession. And that's what he's describing here. He's describing what life was like prior to his confession. He said when he was silent and did not confess his sin, he was weakened physically and tormented inwardly. Notice what he says. He says, your hand, the power of God was on him. The power of God was on David, and he said it was heavy. God dealt severely with David because of his sin. He loved David. He described David as a man after his own heart. Remember, David belongs to the Lord. So these actions are not an enemy against a foe. This is the action of a loving father 
disciplining his son so that he might perfect his son. But, but don't get it. I mean, he was severe in the discipline. I mean, we're severe, right? I mean, think about it. If you never knew anything about spanking and you walked up and you saw a mother or a father spanking a child, right? That would be like the, the most awful thing if you never knew anything about spanking, right? Well, when you think about the discipline of God, sometimes it seems like, gosh, that's so harsh. That's so awful. That's God. And we know what he's doing is the right thing, right? I may discipline my kids and be all wrong and and give too much or too little because I don't get it, right? But God gets it. He knows exactly, exactly how to proportionate the discipline that comes. So the result is his strength was sapped. He was weakened, dried up, as in the summer heat. One commentary said, comment, commentator said, this expression may refer to physical illness with burning fever, or it may describe the poetic language of his remorse of conscience, just eating away inside. You guys know how it is when you got something on your mind that's just eating away? Well, multiply that by a hundred times where the Lord is harassing him and he's not going to rest. Not only does God discipline us to correct us, but even when we've done nothing wrong at all, sometimes God disciplines us to prevent us from future sins. And this is Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because of the surpassing greatness of revelation for this reason, to keep me from Exalting myself, he says. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. It might be a message of Satan, but we all know it's sanctioned by God. Paul prays to God and the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's incredible. Paul says, listen, I have the potential of becoming conceited. He knows why it's happening now. I don't know if he knew it in his writing. He says to keep him from. So somehow the Lord communicated to Paul, here's why it's happening. To keep you from being conceited. Even the apostle Paul has the capacity to become conceited. So the Lord disciplines him so that, so that he would not exalt himself. Third, God disciplines to teach us usually about him, often about ourselves. But God disciplines us to teach us. Um, now, Job is it, right? And we don't have time to do all of Job. What have we been going, 10 minutes? 10 more minutes, right? Job is an incredible book. It teaches so, so many lessons, right? I only want to pull out right now the fact that God disciplined Job to teach him. Job did nothing wrong. In fact, at that time in the world, he was the most righteous guy on earth. How do I know that? Because God said that. Here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along among, Satan also came among them. Now, that's quite a scene, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to be able to see that? Like, what does that look like? Satan, the fallen angels, the good angels, they're all coming 
before the Lord. And Satan still has access to the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The Lord said to Satan, right? Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's God's description of Job. Nobody like him. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions had increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, God sanctions trials, right? God says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. If you know the story, he terror, he tore. I mean, how? You know what he went through, right? I couldn't endure that. I'm just maybe the. I don't want to endure that, but (laughs) that's how to say it, right? I got to say it the right way. (laughs) But, but so Job starts questioning God. Now, remember, this is a righteous man. There's none like him. And he starts questioning the justice of God because he doesn't know. He, He needs to be taught. And by the way, what's on display in, in the book of Job throughout is really not Job. You know what's on display? Yes, and his faith. His faith endures. That's what Satan was challenging was the faith of Job. But anyway, we spin forward. The Lord comes to Job, and man, he just wears him out. No sympathy, right? Zero sympathy. Here's a guy down on his luck, to, to, so to speak, and lightly, so to speak. But And the Lord comes to Job and shows absolutely no mercy. He says, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know. Who sets the limits for the sea? Don't come past. He just laid them out with questions, right? Now, 42 is what I want to get to. Here's what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. He knows that. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He now knows that. And then he speaks of himself. Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what he needed, right? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. He didn't understand. He didn't know it. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He didn't know. But guess what? You all now know. Because you know from his experience. We're, we don't have to be in the not knowing. What, here's what he knows. This is God. This is God. He is sovereign, in control of everything, even my little life. And I have to be okay with that. And being okay with that helps me along the continuum of growth. Finally, we want to look at that final tool. 
right? God's forgiveness. That's an incredible tool. And we're, I'm not talking about forgiveness for, for leading to salvation. We're talking about as a believer being forgiven by God. Because you know, he doesn't necessarily have to forgive us as believers. In, in, in the prayer, the Lord's, the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, at the bottom of the prayer it says, for if we do not give men when they, when they, if we do not give men when they sin against us, God will not forgive us. You know that verse? I think it's like 15, verse 6, 15 and 14, 14 and 15. Here's what he's saying. It's not talking about heaven and hell type forgiveness. It's talking about a father forgiving their children. And what that prayer is saying is that if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. In, a, in, the, fa- in the sense of a family, he ends up disciplining you, correcting you. He won't forgive. But God's forgiveness is an incredible tool. First John 1, 9. Everybody knows it, right? You probably know it in all kind of versions. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that incredible? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confession leads to forgiveness. Christians are the ones who are confessing sins and being forgiven temporarily for these sins. We've already been forgiven for the ultimate sin of unbelief because now we're in the family of God. We're new people. This forgiveness, once again, is talking about family. Homo legeo is the word, right? Homo means same. Legeo has to do with speech. So it really literally means to say the same thing. So when you're confessing your sins to the Lord, you are saying the same thing, right? Acknowledging. You are acknowledging that your actions are sinful before the Lord. That's what, it me- that's what it means to confess your sins, right? You're acknowledging your sin before the Lord. Homo legeo. If you do that, he's faithful and just, and he's going to forgive the sins. So that's an affirmation of the fact that God will always forgive sins. Not even a thought that if I ask him to forgive my sins, he's not going to forgive it. Of course he's going to forgive sins. Peter says, Lord, how many of my brother sins against me? How many times? Seven times 70? You know, Peter thought he'd elevated a little bit. No, the Lord says, uh, oh, seven times. And the Lord says seven times 70. What the Lord is essentially saying to Peter is, however many times it takes. And that's how he is. However many times it takes for us to come to him and confess sins is however many times we need to do it because the Lord forgives us. That's an incredible comfort. I don't have to hide from him like Adam and Eve in a garden. I can come and I can say, Lord, I've sinned. I've done such and such. Why wouldn't if we have this great promise? Why wouldn't we want to confess sins? You know, you know that's become a rarity publicly. I'm sure each of us in our personal lives with the Lord confess sins, but it's, it's, it's a, a rarity to have publicly this kind of thing happen. Everybody finds a reason 
to forgive the fault, right? The Lord wants us to come and accept the fault, turn it over to him and let him cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a positive reason to confess. A positive reason to confess is that God will forgive. There's a negative reason. There's a negative reason to confess, and Paul outlines that negative reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is an incredible point that Paul is making. This is the Lord's Supper, right? And people were sinning. Some, they, they, they conducted Lord's Supper in what they call the agape feast, so it was a meal. And some people ate much, and some people didn't eat anything, the poor people. So it was, it was ugly. And Paul even said, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat when you come, because they were sinning. Notice how the Lord deals with this. Verse 29 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are sick and, I'm sorry, weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned with the world. They didn't judge themselves. You know what it means to judge yourselves? It means to examine your actions. And and upon examining your actions and you find that your actions are not in keeping with the perfect will of God, we confess. But if we don't do that, then discipline in the form of judgment happens, and it could be severe. You see the severity of it. Those are Christians. Some of them were weak, some of, sick, dead. How, when was the last time you heard somebody say, hey, I'm sick because I sinned, you know, and the Lord has put sickness on me? I bet it happens, right? Now, I am not at all concluding that anytime someone is sick, they're sinning. I think we all know better than that, right? But what I am concluding is it still happens. It still happens that God still judges believers. It absolutely still happens. And some of our brothers and sisters who end up sick, weak, dead, it's because God judged them. I mean, even John says there's a sin that leads to death. He said, I'm not saying don't pray for this sin. Whatever that sin is, there's a sin that leads to death. Ananias and Sapphira died. So the point is, that's the negative reason to confess sins. It's because if you don't, he's going to discipline you like David. He's going to correct you. But here's the promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Moving along the continuum. I guarantee you, as we move along the continuum toward Christ's likeness, we confess sins more. Because the things that didn't bother us here, oh, they bother us here, right? You all, I, I know you can relate to that. Along the way, it's like, man, you know, you start to be harassed by things that you were okay with. But you're not, you're not okay with them anymore because of what they do. So here's what we're talking about in terms of sanctification. God does it. He wants us to cooperate with him. And what he's asking us to do is not difficult. 
He's asking us to trust him through trials. He's asking us to confess our sins. I, I, from time to time, people would call and they would say, hey, brother, you know, I'm sinning again. I'm that, that. And so I would say, listen, confess your sin. And they'd talk some more. Listen, confess your sin. And they'd say, what are you going to do other than confess? Right? What, what? It, it's done. You can't undo it. You confess your sins, right? Just confess your sins. Talk to the Lord about it. Confess the sins and ask the Lord to, to give you wisdom so that you don't keep falling into that, right? Most people that I've talked to don't think that's enough. And I'm going to tell you why they think that. Because they think it's too overwhelming, and it can be. We all know that. We all who've been caught in some sin here, we know how overwhelming it can be. But the deliverance comes from God. He does it. And what I got to always know is that I am dead to sin. I am not to allow sin to reign. That's my responsibility. But I can confess but they're looking for something greater than confessing and asking the Lord to cleanse. Listen, they're, they're, we could be in sins that, that the world does this. The world says, well, it's not your fault. You know, something happened when you were a kid. And when you were a kid, you could, yeah, yeah. No, something happened when we were all kids. We were born into sin. That's what it is, right? And so uh, uh, Norman said something in Sunday school one morning that was just a perfect statement. He says, people think that people are perfectible. Isn't that quite a statement? People are perfectible. No, apart from God, you're not perfectible. And even in Christ, it's a process. So what I would say to any of you, and listen, I'm talking to everybody. Like last week, my disclaimer, I'm not talking to anyone specifically. I'm talking to all of us. Anytime you're caught in a web of sin, first of all, talk to the Lord. He's still there. He's okay. Talk to the Lord. Confess the sin. If you need to communicate with folks who are going to be right there with you, do that. If you want accountability buddies, do that. But, but let me say this. Accountability buddies don't work at all unless the Lord is one of them. The Lord has to be your accountability, right? You got to go to him first. If you don't go to the Lord and you keep going to people and people make you feel good for a second and the guilt kind of uh, is suppressed for a moment, you'll be right back where you need to be. The accountability has to always be God. Just stay right there before the Lord. Okay, there's much more that can be said. I've probably said enough, but the important thing is to recognize that we are new people, and as new people, we do not have to allow sin to reign. And if we allow sin to reign, just recognize God is at work lovingly, and he'll get us to where we need to be for his glory and for our edification. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.